I had a mind to simply uh, come down here, start talking, start preaching, and just let you deal with the new normal. Uh, but as I uh, thought and as I anticipated, uh, I hope that it's uh, advantageous, if not beneficial, that I perhaps explain why I've chosen for the time being uh, this new format or style or method. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, uh, where you have been at church, you've done the church thing, you go home, perhaps your spouse was sick, perhaps your spouse was with a sick kid, or you went out to eat with someone that didn't go to the church, and you get asked the question, what was the sermon about? And you start thinking, okay, can I just picture the passage that was there that we read? Do I know anything about it? What do I say? Grace. Grace. It was about grace. Yeah. Grace is my favorite. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, I, I've noticed uh, in my own life and uh, over the last few months, years even, how difficult it is to pay attention to a sermon. It's quite challenging. At the same time, when you're in a conversation with someone, if I'm talking to Ian and we're talking back and forth, well, generally speaking, it's easier to pay attention to a conversation that you're in rather than listening to someone just talk kind of over you. I'm hoping that by, at least for the time being, embracing this method, this style, whatever you want to call it, that it will help facilitate your paying attention. I think it's uh, at least in some way, the responsibility of the church as leaders to help you pay attention, recognizing it can be, can be a challenging and a difficult thing. Now, one of the things that I've done as far as my own reading and listening is I've been paying attention to other people talk about this style of teaching, uh, where it's less maybe lecturish or reading and more dialogical in the sense where I don't have notes, I don't have 18 pages, and I'm speaking towards you kind of a little more spontaneously. And one of the things that uh, people have commented on is that it feels or it can give the sense of being a little bit more like a journey. We're going to end here, okay? So you can take a big breath of relief. We're going to end here, like we always do. We're going to end celebrating, celebrating the Eucharist together. But right now, uh, you're not really sure how we're going to get there. I'm not entirely sure how we're going to get there. I have some ideas. But the how makes things a little bit, perhaps, uncomfortable. But I'm not sure who's made the argument that meeting with God should really be comfortable. You, you do this all the time. You buy books, specifically you buy overpriced movie tickets, to go and find out the how. Unless you're watching some deconstructive postmodern nonsense, and there's a lot of that, you know that this movie you're going to see, you know how it's going to resolve. The guy's going to get the girl. They're going to get married. The bad guy's going to lose. More often than not, you're not really there because of how it's going to end. You're wondering how we're going to get there. How is this going to take place? I think by entering into more of a conversationalist approach, I'm hoping that 
that how is a little more alive, uh, that you are kind of forced to pay attention because you're not sure how it's going, how it's going to happen. There's also uh, a high probability that this is a train wreck. But of course, if it is a train wreck, you'll be paying attention, won't you? <laughs> now, another, another reason, there are, there are a lot of variables for why I'm choosing uh, to kind of approach sermons this way, again, for the time being. One of them uh, is a little more of a confession. Uh, and it's somewhat embarrassing. It's actually quite embarrassing. Uh, I preached a sermon like this a few months ago. I'm not really sure exactly how long ago it was. But as I was, as I was just talking about the things that I had learned, the things that I had read, what I had studied, and then when I was done preaching, what became somewhat obvious, and I'll say I'm 99% sure, just because 100 seems like a bit much, but I'm 99% sure that that was the only sermon that I've ever preached where I wasn't afraid of men. Again, it's a horrible admission for a preacher. The temptation to write a sermon, to, get, to look at phrases, to look at paragraphs, to look at sentences, and to think of all your faces, and the, the little or the lot that I know about your situations, the temptation to rephrase, to recast, to change words, to change ideas because of the possibility of offending, the possibility that you might not like it, the possibility that you might leave. Well, it's a very palpable, it's a very palpable fear. So the fact that I preached a sermon and I was far more concerned with what God would think than what you would think, well, I'm going to lean into that. The flip side of that confession is that it was also, don't want to say the first time, but it was, it was intense, that I felt desperately the need for the Holy Spirit. It's not to say that I didn't need him before, but I, I could sense it. Uh, I even sense it now, because I don't have all my nice words sitting right in front of me. We have a, a there's actually, behind the pulpit, you can't see it, it's a little strip someone made, it sits there for your preachers to look at. It says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And the idea is that you get behind the pulpit and you lean on the Holy Spirit's strength and not your own. Again, a couple months ago, there were moments in my trying to communicate what God's Word said, I could sense my desperation for help. And as much as, as, much as I've seen that and I believe that, if I'm totally honest... There have been sermons in the past where it might as well have just said up there, I believe in Jacob Scogan's ability to write. That's not good. So I'm going to try, for the time being, to lean into uh, a style that I hope will be more conversational. I hope it will be easier to pay attention. I hope that it will free me from what, when Jeremiah was commissioned by God to preach, God told Jeremiah, do not be afraid of their faces. Paul warns Timothy about preaching and tickling the ears of his listeners. There's a sense of being desperate, dependent, needy on the Holy Spirit that I, I want to try to lean into. Now, that, that said, here's your introduction. 
We're talking about these names. And the name for this, this week is Everlasting Father. In verse 6. Let me just read verse 6 again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's a little bit of a problem in the text, or not in the text. We have a problem with the text. Because our relationship with our fathers is complicated, isn't it? Fathers. Fathers are the ones who neglect. Fathers are the ones who abuse. Fathers are the ones who, well, cheated on your mother. Fathers are the ones who drink. Fathers are the ones who abandon and run away. So the problem that we have with this phrase, everlasting father, is that our experiences of fatherhood, who would want that to be everlasting? And, and we can, and I think it, this is important, we can talk about all the hard and horrible and obvious things that fathers do that are simply wrong and even anti-father. But maybe, maybe your experience with fatherhood isn't on some extreme. Maybe he just didn't tell you that he loved you. Or he said it so infrequently that the memory, it's hard to pull up. Maybe you just never could please him. There's always a disappointment. The continuum on which fathers can do damage is quite large. And I don't think anyone in this room should think, well, I didn't have some extreme version. Fatherhood gone wrong, it does something that I'm not sure you can ever get out of or undo. So everlasting father... Again, we come to the text with experiences that if we sit and look at that phrase, we might ask, what does this mean? Now, that, uh, set that aside. I can't fix that, solve that. That's just a recognition of our reality. That sits there. To the text, one question that might be on your mind I think it's, a, it's an obvious question, is that, well, let's back up and realize that we are Christians in a Protestant church, meaning we believe that the God of Israel is the maker and sustainer of the world, that the God of Israel promised a Messiah who is going to be a deliverer, not just for Israel, but for the entire world, and he was going to deliver his people and the world from sin and death. As a Christian church, we believe that that Messiah, that Mashiach, that Deliverer, is Jesus of Nazareth, born to Joseph and Mary. So therefore, we read Scripture, and we read these texts that are telling us about who the Deliverer is going to be and what he will do, and we rightly apply these attributes or these names to Jesus. But Jesus is called the Son of God. He's also called the Son of Man. 
Even look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. So maybe an immediate question, I don't think it's a hard one to solve, but an immediate question is, how is the Son the everlasting Father? What does that mean? We'll begin to, to make, we'll start an answer. There's a, there's a very peculiar species of animal that about roughly a quarter of the way through their life to about a third of the way through their life, they literally begin creating their own replacements. They're called um, children. A quarter of the way through your life, a third of the way through your life, you begin creating those who will replace you. In the sense of, with humans, fathers begin raising children, sons and daughters. Mothers and fathers raise sons and daughters to replace them. And one of the interesting things about, I think, parenthood is that you are essentially trying to make yourself unnecessary. You're trying to train up a son, daughter, so that they don't need you. Now, this is the, the phraseology to make yourself unnecessary, maybe more appropriately applied to fatherhood, but it's very interesting if you just want to take a, a detour real quick. If you ta- start talking about mothers or motherhood, uh, Freud has an interesting line where he says, the good mother fails. The good mother fails. And there's a lot that he means by that, but in part, the good mother will fail her son in in perhaps accidental ways, but in obvious ways, on-purpose ways, consistently, in order to teach her children how to deal with failure, how to gain strength, how to be equipped to be strong, to be competent in the face of failure. Mothers also do this to train their children that the world will fail them, how are they going to respond? But it's also true, again, this, this idea that the good mother fails, because on a macro scale, the good mother has to stop being a mother at some point. It doesn't mean there's no relationship between mom and child, but all the things that a child needs from a mothering perspective, the child now can accomplish and can do on their own. They don't need their mommy, would be one way of putting it. Now, from the the things that I've read, the things that I've listened to, what I find is interesting is that this is is where there's a lot of tension in homes. And there can be a lot of tension as children grow up and become adults and replace parents. Is that parents can have this fear that if they're not necessary, they won't be wanted. And so what you see in dysfunctional situations is parents who make sure that somewhere their kids need them. The goal, obviously, is to have children that don't need you but want you around. But that fear can be so palpable for parents that they find some way to hook in so that they can still be around, so they can still feel wanted, but really it's just making sure their kids still need them. Now, 
taking that and moving, kind of reframing, this relationship between Jesus being the Son who is called the Everlasting Father. There's a sense in Scripture, and when I say sense, okay, I, when I say sense, I mean a sense in the way that if you take a stick and you put it like in a pond or in a swimming pool, it looks like it's bent, right? You know this phenomenon I'm talking about? When you pull it out, it's, it's straight. It's not bent. But there's a sense, literally, that it's bent. So there's a sense in Scripture, so this could be wrong, maybe it's heresy, we'll work through that together, okay? But there's a sense in Scripture that the Son embodies the Spirit of Father in a way that he does something that the Father didn't do. He does something that the Father didn't do to the point where the Father exalts the Son. Or to use John's terminology, yeah, this, I don't think this is heresy, it's in the Bible. Um, to use John's terminology, the Son is the fullness of God. He's the fullness of God. And in this sense, there is a, a spirit of what it means to be Father that the Son embodies in the most profound way. In a way that the Father himself is proud of and exalts. Now, there are there's all kinds of things we could get into as to what is that Spirit of the Father. What is the Spirit of the Father that Jesus embodies so that he is the everlasting Father? There's, there's too many, and it was hard to filter in my own thoughts this week, what to talk about. I want to focus on one. Just one, one component of what, what is the spirit of fatherhood that Jesus embodies that makes him exalted in the fullness of God. How is the Son, Jesus, the everlasting Father? And why do we want him to be that? Many of you are familiar with uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, some of his work, his writing. Uh, the man was absolutely brilliant, articulate. He had a rapier wit. I mean, he was just so quick and so fast and so well, well thought out. And he was a cultural critic. He was a philosopher. He was a critic of anthropology, of sociology. And I also think he was a prophet. He looked at certain patterns, certain types. There was a trajectory. And he could see where things were going in society, in the church. And he spoke his mind. Uh, he, was, uh, he was quoted as saying, this was talking about politically and culturally, he said... It's disappointing how very few politicians are hanged. <laughs> so yeah, he kind of went there on occasion. He was uh, giving a lecture, uh, reading a speech at some, some place where they had a Q&A, and someone asked him, it was very like, uh, culturally oriented, like what's wrong with culture, what, what, where is culture going awry, and he was uh, making some observations. And then in the Q&A, uh, someone asked the question, Mr. Chesterton, what is wrong with the world? And his response was, I am. I am. Part of me just wants to end there 
but I think there's a clarification, qualification that needs to be made. This is a very peculiar mechanism, if we can call it that. Because as you look, as I look at my relationships, I look at my job, I look at the church. What's the problem? I am. We could, we could sit on that, we could chew on that for days, weeks, and should. The one qualification or clarification I'll give is that there's a tendency, or there can be a tendency, to when you leave here, you kind of do this. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, I am, I am. What's the problem with my relationship with my wife? What's the problem with my relationship with my kids? What's the problem with my relationship with my parents? I am, I am. Kind of one eye open making sure everybody else is doing the same thing. So that when they say, when your wife says, the problem with our marriage is I am, you go, yep, yep, see, I've been talking about it for a long time. And we have some things to talk about. I'm glad you finally admitted it. Thanks for listening. This, this doesn't work in the sense of, like, I don't, even, I don't even think I can say, you are the problem in your relationships. This mechanism doesn't work like that. I can't say you're the problem with your relationship with your spouse or your parents. It has to be an internalized, it almost has to be your credo. I am. I am. This is the spirit that the Son embodies. God the Son looked at the situation in the world and said, what's the problem? I am. And he took on in himself the responsibility, the utter and complete responsibility for everything that had gone wrong with humanity. Every sin, every abuse, every situation where fathers were being more anti-fathers, all of it. And he didn't say, that's not my mess. I didn't do that. That's not my fault. He literally came to earth to say, I am. And I will endure in my body the consequences and the punishment for everything. That's the spirit of the Father that the Son embodies. That he would come and he would say, if there is going to be punishment, if there's going to be justice, it will be met out in me. What's the problem with the world? Well, the great I am that I am. I would ask the elders to come forward at this time. Beloved in Christ, this is the Lord's Supper. This meal does not belong to Sand Hills Presbyterian Church. It does not belong to these elders. It does not belong only to Presbyterians. It is the Lord's. And it belongs to all who have been baptized and profess Jesus as King and swear allegiance to Him and Him alone. If this is true of you. Welcome in the name of Jesus the Everlasting Father. We do not presume, Almighty God, to come to this your table, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, that as we eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and drink his blood, that we would realize that the problem with the world is us, 
And at the same time, it is through that realization and our death that we are reborn and that we give life to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As Jesus was eating with his disciples, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. During the distribution of the bread, we will sing together 193, Let all mortal flesh keep silence. 193. Lord of lords in 